He is such a savior that there is no other can vie with him. All rivalry must prove abortive, seeing that other foundation can no man lay. He is the door of heaven. All the rest is hard wall, and there is no passing through. A light from God and all other lights are darkness. Very God came down to us in our flesh to save us. And where shall you find the match of this? O cherubim and seraphim, what savior could you devise that should emulate the only begotten Son of God? O you angels, fairest among the godly throng that salute Jehovah day and night with your ceaseless music, whom will you laud and magnify but Jesus in your jubilant, worshipful songs? As you survey the glorious company of the apostles, the noble army of the martyrs, and the radiant fellowship of the church redeemed, will you chant any other name? Is he not in your esteem the chief among a thousand, the sole heritor of all blessings and praise? Accept him, sinner. Receive him joyfully into thy spirit, for such a one will never woo thee as this precious one the chosen of God, who, save Jesus, then, should be chosen and precious to thy soul. It is a great sign of mercy whenever Christ comes to any sinner. But how, say you, can he come to a sinner? I will tell you. He has come to you now, to every one of you. Jesus comes in the preaching of the gospel. There is never a gospel sermon preached but it is, in fact, Jesus coming with open arms of love to receive the sinner. He comes to you in these Bibles and New Testaments of yours. Every one of those volumes that lies in your house is a standing token of Christ's mission, whispering to him that hath ear to hear that he is still ready to receive the sinner. And I trust he comes to some of you now in the motions of the Holy Ghost upon your heart saying to you, Close in with him. Reject him no longer. Bow down thine ear and listen to him. Lift up thine eye and look to him. Concerning whom we sang so truly just now, there is life for a look at the crucified one. There is life at this moment for thee. This is the first stage. Two. Now secondly, wherever this divine messenger comes, according to the text, he reveals God's uprightness. A lesson, let me assure you, of deep interest and paramount importance. The occasion on which it is taught is peculiarly impressive. You remember Elihu has been describing a man greatly afflicted, chastened with pain, wasted with disease, reduced to a skeleton, and brought nigh to death. We have shown you that ere the Lord Jesus Christ comes in mercy to deal with his soul, such tribulation is dealt out by God to break up the fallow ground of the heart. No marvel that the sufferer is appalled with tokens of judgment. What message, then, can the divine messenger bring more suitable or more refreshing than that which reveals to man the uprightness of God in having afflicted him? You think perhaps that God has been very hard with you. In your distraction you say, How long I have been ill? How long I have been out of work? How long my wife has been afflicted? How many of my dear children have died? 
What strokes God has laid upon me without intermission? How shall new views spring up and conformable thoughts arise? But who shall bridge the interval? When Christ comes to you as an interpreter, he will make you discern the wisdom and the love and cause you to feel the pity and the tenderness of him who, as a father, rebukes you, not in anger, but in his dear covenant love. Instead of kicking against the pricks, you will say, Ah, Lord, it is of thy mercy I am not consumed. I can see there is a hand of love in this. God would not let me go on in sin and wander into endless woe. He is blocking up my road. He is putting massive chains across the broad way to stop me. He is digging pits in my path that I may come to a pause, and so I will turn back from this. Depend upon it. There is nothing more dreadful in the conclusion than a life that is happy in the commission of sin. If you have prosperity in all that heart can wish, while pursuing an evil course, tremble, for it is likely enough that God will give you up. You are having your portion in this life. O ye unconverted, are any of you tried and troubled, vexed and disquieted? While I am sorry for your troubles, I hope God has designs of love towards you. If you look to Christ, he will explain to you the heavenly moral of these earthly trials and show you the uprightness of God in dealing thus severely with his rebellious child. Further than this, the gospel of Christ explains to the sinner the uprightness of God and the doom of the impenitent, even if he send him down to hell. Oh, a man may find fault with hell and say, Will God consign men to the devouring fire? Will he destroy their souls? Will he damn men for their offenses? But if once the great interpreter comes to you, you will wonder, not that God should destroy men for sin, but that he has not destroyed you long ago. Oh, I could have argued with a bold front against eternal punishment till I knew what sin meant, and then I gave in at once, and I wish that some of my brethren, who seem to speak dubiously about the wrath of God, could feel as some of us have felt the horror of great darkness that sin brings across the soul when it is made to feel the righteous ire that encompasses and impends it. There is no cavilling then. The only cry is, O my God, deliver me, for I deserve all thy wrath can bring upon me. And if thou should smite me to destruction, thou wilt be justified when thou judgest, and clear when thou condemnest. Mark you, it is a blessed thing when Christ brings a sinner to plead guilty, when he is quite willing to plead guilty, and when, instead of railing at the justice of the sentence, he stands dumb with silence, feeling that God is upright, and would not be upright even if he did not thus condemn. There is hope, there is more than hope, there is confidence in our heart towards any sinner who is convinced of the uprightness of God in his present affliction, or in any other that God may please to send upon him, either in this life or in the end to come. Ah, but this is a learning to some prophet for a man to see the uprightness of God in everything, and then, by contrast, to bewail his own ignorance and foolishness. Mercy is surely come to you when you can think of God's holiness with reverence 
and upbraid yourself with bitter reproach for what an unholy creature you have been. It is a rough wind, that north wind, but, O my brethren, what a healthy wind it is. It sweeps away the fevers of our pride and drives away the mists of our self-righteousness. Self-righteous, indeed, such wretches as we are, such offenders against God and truth as we have been, for us to talk of goodness when we are altogether vile, for us to boast of something hopeful in us when the whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. This is sheer insanity. When the blessed interpreter comes and deals graciously with the Spirit, we confess that God is upright, but as for ourselves, we have gone astray like lost sheep. We have done the things which we ought not to have done. We have left undone the things which we ought to have done, and there is no health in us. Oh, those visions of God, how humiliating are they! So Job himself made confession, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye seeth thee. Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. This supplies us with the second stage in the experience of divine mercy. Christ is recognized, the uprightness of God is revealed and understood. 3. The third stage is this, Then he is gracious unto them. God deals with convinced sinners in a way of grace. Every word here is weighty. Then he is gracious unto them. Mark the time then. God is gracious to a man when, Christ having come to him as a messenger and an interpreter, he is led to discern his own sin and God's uprightness. When he is humble, then God shows himself to be gracious. No debts are pronounced forgiven by the great master of all till they are owned and no release from the pains of bankruptcy are granted until we feel that we have not with which to pay. When a soul pleads total insolvency and is truly penniless, then there is a free forgiveness. When men admit the justice of God if he should punish them, then, not till then, mercy comes in and the punishment is put away. It is not consistent with the holiness of God to pardon a sinner while he denies his guilt or invents excuses to extenuate his crimes. Nor is it reasonable for a sinner to expect remission while he vaunts his self-righteousness. How shall the hardness of a man's heart move the compassion of his judge? Come, poor soul, fall on thy knees, confess that God is upright, and then he will be gracious to thee. The way as well as the time demands your notice. It is through the messenger that God is gracious. Then, that is when the messenger comes. When Jesus interposes, then God is gracious. You shall never taste of grace except out of the golden cup of Christ's atonement. It is into that golden cup that God has poured the infinity of his grace. Drink of it, sinner, by simply trusting in Christ. Drink of it in any other way thou never canst. Narrowly observe what the text says. Then he is gracious unto them. All salvation comes by way of grace. The word grace as used by us in its Latin form explains its own meaning. We speak of gratis. 
a thing free from cost, like the prescription of a physician if given without fee, or the medicine supplied at the dispensary without charge. All God's mercy to a sinner is gratis. He never sells. He always gives. He asks no payment. He asks from no motives raised or suggested by anything in us, but because he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, and he will have compassion on whom he will have compassion. Dear heart, it is a blessing for thee when thou canst see that nothing but Christ can serve thy turn, when thou hast done with appealing to justice, and all thy knocks are at mercy's door. O sinner, you cannot be saved except by grace in the beginning, grace in the middle, and grace in the end. What but grace can pardon sins such as yours and mine? What but grace could take such as we are and make us God's children? What but grace could snatch us from hell and lift us up to heaven? When the man is humbled and Christ is revealed to him, then it is that God deals graciously with the man and then it is that he knows he has found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And I like the thought that it does not say God ever leaves off being gracious to that man. Where we do not read that God ceases, we may believe that he continues. Does he once deal graciously with a sinner? He will always be gracious to that sinner. Never will he change. That sinner once blessed shall be blessed through life and blessed in death and blessed in eternity through the sovereign, overflowing, immutable grace which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, we have come a long way. We have found the sinner sick and near to die. The interpreter has come. He has shown him the uprightness of God and given him an assurance of God's gracious disposition. Now the sinner knows that Christ alone can save him. 4. Let us proceed to the next stage. God delivers the sinner. He saith, Deliver him from going down into the pit. What shall we understand by this? Does it refer to the grave, which is dug like a pit? Well, such an interpretation may harmonize with Elihu's discourse as he describes the man whose soul draweth near to the grave and his life to the destroyers. But when delivered from going down into the pit, his flesh shall be fresher than a child's. He shall return to the days of his youth. So the psalmist celebrates the loving kindness of the Lord. O Lord, thou hast brought up my soul from the grave. Thou hast kept me that I should not go down into the pit. What more shall we understand by the pit from which the soul is delivered? The pit is often used in scripture as the emblem of great distress and misery. Captives in the east were frequently shut up in pits all night. So Isaiah says, They shall be gathered together as prisoners, and gathered into the pit, and shall be shut up in the prison. Isaiah 24 verse 22 And again in another place, The captive exile hasteneth that he may be loosed, and that he should not die in the pit, nor that his bread shall fail. Isaiah 51 verse 14 There is a bondage of soul, which involves depression of spirits and failing of heart 
that may well be likened to the confinement in a pit from which there appears no way of escape. But may we not understand still more by the pit? Alas, then, dear friends, we sometimes read of the pit when the word is pregnant with deeper meaning, even of the pit that is bottomless, that place of torment prepared for devils and lost souls. Oh, if there were time, what a picture we have before us. The pit, the bottomless pit, an awful representation, a horrible vision of the future wrath of God. The pit, black, dark, descending, a down which the soul slips and slides and falls headlong. Going down into the pit, what a dreadful expression. Not going down as miners do to seek for ore, but being hurled by the strong hand of the avenging angel downwards into the abyss. There on the verge of the precipice you are, though not falling down that abyss yet. Your feet have almost gone. Your steps have well nigh slipped. At such a crisis the mercy of God comes to the sinner's aid and cries in thrilling tones, Deliver him. It is not a mere shout of warning. It is a voice that hath power in it. It is a clear, silvery note of rescue, and the man is delivered, just as he is about to sink, to rise no more. Kings and emperors, when they have condemned men to die, can exercise the prerogative of mercy. Let the royal mandate issue concerning a prisoner deliver him, then the prison doors are opened, for the king's pardon has been given. Just such a thing doth God with condemned sinners, when they bow before him and confess the righteousness of the sentence. Through Jesus Christ, the heavenly messenger, he says, Deliver him, deliver him. There is a legal pardon. The man is set free from the bonds of the jailer, instead of being given over to the hands of the executioner. Henceforth he shall live in peace and joy. Deliver him. Perhaps the three significations of the pit I have alluded to may be combined in one dark picture. Sickness brings the sinner to the immediate prospect, not of death only, but of his endless doom. The sorrows and remorse of his soul produce, as it were, a foretaste of that anguish which knows no abatement. And, anon, hell doth yawn at his feet, a universe of death, worse than fables yet have framed or fear conceived. How many witnesses we might call to speak to the truth of all this. Why, Elihu said, Lo, all these things worketh God oftentimes with man. The anguish is real, and the joy of rescue is real likewise. Did not Hezekiah feel them both? The message came to him, Thus saith the Lord, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. Then he prayed vehemently, and he wept sore. Afterwards the word of the Lord came to him that his prayer was heard, that his tears were seen, and that his life should be spared. And this is what he said, Behold, for peace I had great bitterness, but thou hast in love to my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption. 
for thou hast cast all my sins behind my back. For a shout of joy is that of David when he says, He brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my goings. In like manner, Jonah speaks, Thou hast brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Most memorable, too, is the sweet promise of God to the daughter of Zion, by the mouth of the prophet Zechariah. As for thee also, by the blood of thy covenant, I have set forth thy prisoners out of the pit wherein is no water. Yes, my dear friends, and I feel bound to say for myself, to the praise of my God, Thy love was great, thy mercy free, which from the pit delivered me. Well do I remember when the sentence went forth to my soul, Deliver him. The time did indeed seem long first. I was years and years upon the brink of hell. I mean in my own feelings. I was unhappy, I was desponding, I was despairing. I dreamed of hell. My life was full of sorrow and wretchedness, believing that I was lost. But oh, the blessed gospel of the God of grace came to me at length with that soft voice, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all ye ends of the earth. With it came a sovereign word, Deliver him. And I, who was but a minute before as wretched as a soul could be, could have danced for very merriment of heart. And as the snow fell on my road home from the little house of prayer, I thought every snowflake talked with me and told of the pardon I have found. For I was white as the driven snow through the grace of God. Oh, that word, deliver him. It so restrains the temptations of Satan and quells the strivings of conscience that the poor soul has instantaneous liberty and rejoices with joy unspeakable. Mark you, my dear friends, if ever you should look to Christ by simple faith and God should say, Deliver him, that deliver him will last you forever. God does not play fast and loose with sinners. If he pardons today, he will not condemn tomorrow. He does not loose and then bind again. He openeth and no man shutteth. Once he says deliver him, you may walk through all the earth and who shall lay anything to your charge? For who is he that can arrest you and cast you into prison against this deliver him? There may have come into this place some great offender. It is impossible for me to discriminate among you or single out any one of these thousands. But there may be here some one of the very blackest class of sinners. To you, Christ's gospel has come. I hope you have been led to feel that you are guilty, to confess your sin, and to own that you can only be saved through God's grace and mercy. Well now, if you will but trust my Savior, the Lord Jesus, who once died on Calvary's cross and now lives enthroned in glory, if you will but trust him now, the sentence shall come from the throne, deliver him, or deliver her from going down into the pit. Oh, there have been many outcasts in these very aisles 
who have found grace and obtained remission of their sins. The harlot has heard the word, Deliver her from going down into the pit. The thief and the drunkard too, though in their own conscience on the very brink of hell, and all but sliding in, have heard it, and they are here among the happy worshippers that praise God. Some of us, who never fell into those foul vices, though depraved in our hearts, as they have heard that blessed sound, and we are here to express our soul's desire that you all know it. Oh, that you all trusted in Christ. Oh, that you were all saved by that blessed mandate, deliver him from going down into the pit. 5. The last thing is that God explains to the sinner whom he delivers the reason of his deliverance. Deliver him from going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. I have found a ransom, a covering. Catch the thought. There are your sins like a forted sloth, reeking with corruption. They are black, like a huge pool of blood. They are scarlet. It is abhorrent to the pure eyes of God to look upon the heart that is a very reservoir of pollution. He must smite you if you look at it. Listen, I have found a covering. Christ comes in and covers it all. Blessed is that man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. As the mercy seat covered the law and was called a covering, so does the atonement of Christ cover the perfect law of God, and it puts out of God's sight every sin of all those who trust in Christ. But take the word as we get it in the English version, a ransom. That means a price. When a man was in debt, he used to be, according to the old law, put into prison. Well, how did he get his discharge? He came out if the debt was paid, of course, at once. So God saith, Deliver him. I have found a price. I have found a recompense. I have found a substitute. I have found a ransom. The Lord Jesus Christ has suffered for us what God's wrath demanded of us. He bore that we might never bear his Father's righteous ire. Christ stood in our stead that we might go free. I have told you this grand old tale so many times in this house that sometimes as I am coming here I think to myself I can find no new metaphor to illustrate it and no new words to rouse the languid attention that they will tell me that I am always harping on the same string. Still, still I must continue to expound and enforce this substitutionary suffering of Christ. I cannot help it. It is as much as my soul is worth to keep it back, for I am persuaded that it is the very essence of the gospel, the vicarious suffering of Christ. At any rate, I have no gospel to preach to you but this, that God has punished Christ instead of you that will believe on Christ, and therefore he cannot punish you. You are clear. Christ has paid your debts. The receipt is given. You are liberated. God has no claims upon you from his justice now. They are all discharged. Christ has discharged all your liabilities.
By him all that believe are justified from all things from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. Never listen, I entreat you, my dear hearers, to the derisive sneer of the scorner as he attempts to cast discredit upon the righteousness of God in the imputation of our sins to the great Redeemer. I know that it is not in the power of skeptic, rationalist, Sothenian, or infidel to bring forth one argument that can refute the plain testimony which abounds in the scriptures. But they can, and they do, ask if our moral sense of rectitude is not shocked at inflicting punishment on the innocent and bestowing rewards as well as pardon on the guilty. Do they object to you that it were unjust on the part of God to make one man suffer personally for another man's sin? Tell them, if they better understood the doctrine, they would see that instead of outraging the morality of men, it manifests the righteousness of God. Tell them, as one of our most famous Puritans did, that the Redeemer and the redeemed have such an intimate relation that what one doth or suffereth the other may be accounted to do or suffer. It is no unrighteousness if the hand offend for the head to be smitten. Christ is our head and we are his members. Tell them that he who suffered the just for the unjust had power to lay down his life and power to take it again. His submission, therefore, was voluntary. Tell them that he who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree agreed and stipulated to bear our iniquities. The whole matter was settled in covenant between the Father and the Son. Tell them once more that our Lord Jesus Christ counted the cost and esteemed the recompense when he, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. With honor and glory shall he be crowned. Because he humbled himself, therefore God also hath highly exalted him. And because he hath made himself of no reputation, to him is given a name which is above every name. Tell them his mediatorial glory surpasseth thought. Bid them cease their pitiless clamor and leave us to our joys. It is the sweetest music out of heaven and it is the source of the music of heaven. I have found a ransom. Christ's ransom for enslaved sinners is the world's good news. Tell it then and as you hear it let your hearts rejoice. You notice these words I have found a ransom. You do not find it for yourselves. You could not ever have discovered it, much less have brought it into the world. But God found it out. The infinite wisdom of God was needed to find out the way of salvation by a substitute. I have found a ransom. Now since God has found it, and God is satisfied with it, let me, chief of sinners though I be, find rest in this divine satisfaction. Conscience says to me, Well... But how can your sins be forgiven? Again, conscience thunders, Recollect such a day, such a night, such an act, such blasphemy. Dost thou think Christ can wash such a devil as thou art? I answer, Well, if God is satisfied, I am sure I will be. If you owe a debt and your creditor takes the money of another, 
and he is quite easy about it. Whist man, do not you be uneasy about it. If he is satisfied, you may be, and if God is content with Christ, so, poor sinner, let you and I be satisfied, and let us begin to sing. I will praise thee every day, now thine anger's turned away. Comfortable thoughts arise from the bleeding sacrifice. Jesus is become at length my salvation and my strength, and his praises shall prolong while I live my pleasant song. O bless the dear name of him who suffered in your stead. O take his ransom price, look at it, turn over every sacred drop of it in your memory and your gratitude. Be satisfied, and more than satisfied. Rejoice, and be exceeding glad to be delivered from going down into the pit. God has found an all-sufficient and a most blessed ransom for your souls, and therefore you are delivered. What more can I say to you, my dear hearers? I have told you the way of mercy, and I have described to you the footsteps of mercy in the experience of those who have proved it saving efficacy. But I cannot bring Christ to your souls, or when Christ comes nigh unto you, as he doth now in the ministry of his gospel, I cannot make you open the doors of your hearts to receive him. O ye who do not believe, and yet are in your sins, what more can I do for you than thus to cry aloud in your ears and proclaim to you the path of life? This one thing I can do. I can stand here and break my heart to think that you refuse him. But no, I cannot take leave of you thus. I must beseech and entreat and implore you as you love your souls. Turn not away from the divine messenger, from Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners, he asks no great thing of you. He bids you not pass through ceremonies that will take you days and months. But now, one believing glance at yonder cross, one glance at him who died there for sinners, and it is done. Christ is honored. God is satisfied. You are saved. Go your way and tell your friends what great things he hath done for you. And God bless you. Amen. Chapter 11, page 88, Life More Abundant I am come that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. John 10, verse 10 The thief cometh not but for to steal, and to kill, and to destroy. False teachers, whatever their professions, seriously injure and imperil the souls of men, and in the end cause their destruction. Their selfish ends can only be answered by the ruin of their dupes. The Lord Jesus, the true teacher of men, causes injury to none and brings death to no man's door. His teaching is full of goodness, kindness, and love, and it works most effectually for human happiness and benefit. Error is deadly. Truth is life-giving. The coming of the old serpent wrought our death. The advent of the woman's seed has brought us life. We shall omit all preface and ask you to note that according to the text, Jesus Christ is come first, that his people may have life, and secondly, that where life is already given, it may be enjoyed more abundantly. 1. 
The first truth is that Jesus Christ has come that men may have life. I will not dwell upon the thought that even the prolonged natural life of the sinner is due in large measure to the coming of Christ. The barren tree would not stand so long in the garden of life if it were not that the dresser of the vineyard intercedes and cries, Spare it yet another year, until I dig about it and dung it. The interposition of the mediator accounts for the lengthened lives of gross offenders whose crimes tax the long-suffering of heaven. If the prayers of our great intercessor should cease for a single hour, the ungodly among mankind would, perhaps, sink down quick into hell, as Korah, Dathan, and Abiram did, when the Lord's anger broke forth upon them. That, however, is not the drift of the text. Life in the sense of pardon and deliverance from the death penalty is the great result of Christ's coming. All men in their natural condition are under sentence of death, for they have sinned, and shortly they must be taken to the place of execution, there to suffer the full penalty of the second death. If any of us are delivered at this time from the sentence of death and have now the promise of the crown of life, we owe the change to the coming of the Redeemer to be a sacrifice for our sins. Every man among us must go down to the endless death unless through him who came to earth and hung upon the tree as the sinner's substitute we obtain full remission for all offenses in the verdict of life instead of death. Life there is in the look at Jesus, but apart from him the sons of Adam are under sentence of death. Moreover, we are all by nature dead in trespasses and sins. In the day when our first parents broke the law, they died spiritually, and all of us died in them. And now today, apart from Christ, we are all dead to spiritual things, being devoid of that living spirit which enables us to have communion with God and to understand and enjoy spiritual things. All men are by nature without the spirit which quickness to the highest form of life. Unregenerate men have physical life and mental life, but spiritual life they have not, nor will they ever have it except as Jesus gives it to them. The Spirit of God goes forth according to the divine will and implants in us a living and incorruptible seed which is akin to the divine nature and confers on us a new life by virtue of which we live in the realm of spiritual things, comprehend spiritual teachings, seek spiritual objects, and are alive unto God, who is a spirit. No one among us has any life of this kind by birth, neither can it be bestowed upon us by ceremonial rites, nor obtained by human merit. The dead cannot rise to life except by miracle, neither can man rise to spiritual life except by the working of the Spirit of God upon him, for he it is who alone can quicken us. Christ Jesus has come to call us from the graves of sin. Many have already heard his voice and live. This spiritual life is the same life which will be continued and perfected in heaven. We shall not, when we rise again from the grave, obtain a life which we do not possess on earth. We must be alive unto God here or take our places among those 
whose worms dieth not, and whose fire is not quenched. There beats within the believer's heart this day the self-same life which shall enjoy the fullness of joy in the divine presence. If you have only looked to Jesus a few minutes ago, yet is there in your heart now the blessed life, the incorruptible seed is sown in you which liveth and abideth forever. The heavenly life is within you, in this Jesus Christ came to bestow upon us. The truth that Jesus is the life-giver is clear enough in the text, and it leads to the following practical reflections. Life for your souls is only to be had in Jesus. If then you are this day seeking salvation, you are instructed as to the only source of it. Spiritual life is not the result of working. How can the dead work for life? Must they not be quickened first, and then will they not rather work from life than for life? Life is a gift, and its bestowal upon any man must be the act of God. The gospel preaches life by Jesus Christ. Sinner, see where you must look. You are wholly dependent upon the quickening voice of him who is the resurrection and the life. This, saith one, is very discouraging to us. It is intended so to be. It is kindness to discourage men when they are acting upon wrong principles. As long as you think that your salvation can be affected by your own efforts or merits or anything else that can arise out of yourself, you are on the wrong track and it is our duty to discourage you. The way of life is in the opposite direction. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-450, 3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. 
And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.